Welcome to the VBPH Sermon Podcast. All this week we'll be featuring sermons from the recent 2023 Bible Conference in Tempe, Arizona, pastored by Mark Olson. We hope these are a blessing to you, and we're sure they will be. Thanks for listening and supporting world evangelism, and enjoy today's sermon. After that uh, very wonderful introduction, I only have about 12 minutes to preach. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much to Mark and Michelle, great friends. My wife Renee was going to come, but we got back very late Saturday night from a week-long trip. And, you know, we're not spring chickens anymore. We're, we're winter chickens. We get tired. So she just uh, felt like she ought to stay home and rest a little bit, and she did, but she sends her love to Michelle and her daughters and everyone here that she knows. Um, So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to uh, Esther chapter 4, Esther chapter 4. There's a familiar saying that we have now, see something say something. This phrase has actually been trademarked by the United States federal government. It was trademarked in 2010. And it has become a familiar phrase in today's world where acts of terrorism, school shootings, and other incidences that are in the news Uh, are occurring more and more. And this phrase has been embraced uh, by the federal government in an effort to get the public, uh, when you see something, say something. Because so often it would happen that someone would see something uh, and they didn't say anything uh, and a tragedy played out. So they're trying to inspire people. See something, say something. September 25th has actually been designated as national, if you see something, say something, awareness day with, that involves a campaign uh, to try to inspire the public to speak out on suspicious activity. School shootings over the last few years have become front page news and just last year, they, uh, there was a particular incident, but what, what has happened with these school shootings is they've discovered that in most cases, the school shooters confided in someone about what they were going to do, but no one spoke up. And now they bear the guilt of their silence. There was a recent case last year of two parents, married couple, who knew something was up with their son. James and Jennifer Crumbly were charged, the parents of the son who did the school shooting, they were charged with involuntary manslaughter. Their son took a gun that their parents had given him for Christmas and killed four students in his high school. The conclusion by the judge was They should have known that something was off with this kid. That's what he said. They would have seen something. They may have heard something, but they didn't speak up. 
You and I as believers, whether you are a brand new Christian, a long-term member of a church, or as we uh, emphasize this morning, called to preach or are currently preaching, you and I have been given a sacred truth. Man's sinful condition, the answer for it, and the coming judgment. And with those things in place, we must not remain silent. You know, in some cases, they say that silence is golden. But sometimes silence is a crime. It's an offense. We're going to read in our text from the book of Esther about Haman's plot to kill the Jews. Something had to be done by someone. In order to prevent this from happening, someone had to take action. That's what God was depending on. And it's quite an incredible truth. You would think that God could conduct his business a lot more efficiently than any one of us can, but it depends on people to speak up. And when they do, then God moves. In Esther 3, just before we read our text, in the letters were sent by the couriers into all the king's provinces. The king sent a letter on the advice of one of his uh, uh, princes named Haman. He sent letters to destroy and to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. In one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. The queen at the time was a young woman named Esther. She's Jewish. The plot is discovered. She must speak up. She had every reason to fear. She had reservations. Speaking up was not in her wheelhouse. She was a brand new queen. But in the end, she realized that there was too much at stake. And what motivated Esther is what motivates you and I to speak up. So let's read our main text, Esther 4, verse 13. This is after the plot has been exposed. Mordecai, her cousin, is speaking to Esther, the queen. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. And he said that in the context, if you remain silent. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go. Go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I want you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such great grace and great favor and great love and great power that's exhibited in this conference I pray for special help and anointing tonight to minister in a message of urgency in Jesus' name. And we give you praise and glory. See something, say something. So let's first of all talk about God's dependence on people. There is one great need here in the text. 
So what is the answer that God is looking for? Does God have to intervene and do something? No. Do we need some kind of an overwhelming miracle to be performed or a sign from heaven? No. Someone needs to say something. And that person is Esther. That's the answer. The solution to the tragedy that is about to unfold. If someone doesn't say something, the tragedy is going to unfold. Something terrible is about to happen. God's people, the Jews, are going to be annihilated. The messianic seed is going to be destroyed. Yet everything seems to hinge on the decision of one young woman. And initially, she wavers and says, no, I can't. I'm going to remain silent. You know, you would think that God would place the future of his people on something more powerful and impressive than one little woman. But it highlights a present truth that gives us insight into how God works and what he depends upon to accomplish his purposes today. Something terrible is about to unfold across the entire world. The rapture of the church is going to come. That's not terrible for us. We're going to go be with Jesus Christ, but it's terrible for what's going to happen on the earth. Judgment is going to fall, and it's going to be the most terrible, excruciatingly tragic circumstance that could ever be imagined. We have descriptions of it uh, throughout the word of God. Judges, uh, judgments uh, have fallen in the past uh, upon Israel, upon the world, but nothing like what is going to come. Someone has to speak up in advance of that happening. First Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached uh, to save those who believe. Romans, uh, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Is there not a sense of urgency that I was talking about this morning uh, that we should invoke here? And I appeal to those men uh, who feel a call of God to preach again, to position yourself, to get sent out at the soonest possible opportunity so that for a city or for a nation, you can begin to speak up a message of hope. What a powerful testimony from our brother. I think he's in Nicaragua. These drunks are coming in and they're getting saved and they're giving their life to Christ. Why? Because you sent a man and in that nation he is speaking up and issuing issuing the warning uh, that is resulting in powerful conversions taking place. Somebody has got to speak up. God depends on the common and the ordinary people like us that he will bring center stage and place them in the center of his purposes. Here we are, several hundred people crammed into this little room and literally we are at the very epicenter 
of what God is doing on the earth. Next week, I'm going to be preaching in Toronto, Canada at their conference. And conferences are happening this week and last week and next week and all the way up until the July Prescott Conference. We're not the only ones doing something on the earth for God, but I believe our fellowship is uniquely poised with now 54, I think, conferences all over the world. We are uniquely poised. We are at the epicenter of what God is doing in the earth. And more and more and more, God is raising up people to scatter to the ends of the earth that will begin to speak up. Esther is a reluctant hero. She's not what we would have in mind when we think of a savior for the Jews. She's an orphan. She started out in life insignificant, unknown. Her parents died somewhere in the process of being taken into captivity or shortly thereafter. Yet it is going to be her words to the king that are going to matter most in this incredible moment in the history of the Jewish people. This is the reality of soul winning. The most effective soul winners are not the superstars, the talented, the rich, etc., the celebrities, but the common, ordinary, Pastor Warner used to call them brown paper bag sinners that get saved. Nothing extraordinary, no incredible talent. Uh, Pastor Warner used to preach to us uh, that the most effective soul winners uh, are the newest converts that begin to speak up uh, and tell their friends and all those that they're connected with uh, about Jesus Christ. First Corinthians, uh, I've always loved this scripture. uh, For you see your calling, brethren. uh, Not many wise, that's us. Not many mighty, again us. uh, Not many noble, certainly us. uh, But God has chosen the foolish, that is us. The foolish things of the world, but to put to shame the wise, God has chosen the weak, us again, things of the world, to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What an incredible strategy to take people like us and use them as the primary instruments to save, to deliver, to heal, and to declare a warning to the world uh, that judgment is coming, uh, but you can be saved and you can be rescued uh, through, a, through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It's a mistake to think that somehow your voice doesn't matter. Whether you're a preacher or you're the newest believer or somewhere in between, it's a mistake to think that it doesn't matter if I witness or not. Plenty of people are. If I don't talk to this person about Jesus and I have an opportunity to speak to them, someone else will come along. The Bible is filled with seemingly insignificant people. Some of them, we don't even know their name, whose lone voice spoke up and we see incredible miracles. Naaman's made. From 2 Kings chapter 5. He's a Syrian commander. They conquered some area of Israel and he captured a, a, a young Jewish girl and Naaman has leprosy and this young Jewish girl told Naaman that if you'd go to Israel, there's a prophet there and I know you could be healed. And we have this whole incredible narrative in Second Kings chapter 5. She spoke up in the face of Naaman's leprosy, which would have eventually killed him. 
And we have this incredible story of a miracle. The woman at the well, we don't have her name, but what, a, what an incredible story that is. Uh, she reached an entire city, a nameless woman. Uh, her word saved a city. Uh, she had no Bible knowledge, no religious background, just some religious babble that she'd grown up with. Uh, but when she went uh, and said uh, to the people in the city, I think I've met the Messiah. He said this to me. Uh, they all came out. Jesus stayed for three days days and preached to them. This woman spoke up, the woman with the issue of blood. I recently preached about this because I saw something in the story that I'd never seen before. She's the one that approached Jesus from behind, touched the hem of his garment and was healed. And we have this incredible narrative in the Bible. And the Bible says in Mark 5 that when she heard about Jesus, someone told her about Jesus. Someone spoke up. Maybe it was someone that had been healed. Maybe it was someone that was at one of his crusades and saw people getting healed. But they went and told her, listen, this Jesus is healing people. And here she is sick and vexed with a flow of blood. And because somebody spoke up, we have an incredible miracle that transpired in her life. Jesus met the man in Mark 5, the Gadarene, the demon-possessed man living in the tombs. And he said to the man, the man tried to follow him after. After he was delivered and Jesus said, no, go home to your friends. Imagine what kind of friends a guy like that would have. <laughs> He's running around naked. They'd bind him with chains and he would break the chains and he's, he's howling like a wild animal in the tombs. And Jesus said, go find your bros <laughs> and tell them, show them the great things that God has done. The strategy of hell is to silence your voice. And I wonder how many could be sitting here, could be listening on live stream. When it comes to this, you're virtually pretty much silent. Witnessing is not a dominating feature of your life. The devil's aim and the devil's objective. And don't we see this culturally? How many voices are trying to be silenced today? Politically and culturally uh, and, uh, uh, and our very uh, belief system as Christians and believers uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, no, you cannot say that. Uh, you cannot preach that. Uh, you cannot make that declaration. It's your job to get people saved. Every single believer in Jesus Christ. That is part of what your calling and your occupation is. Jesus has equipped every single believer in Jesus Christ. As I said, in the early days of the Tucson Church and Revival, uh, it was the newest believers uh, that were bringing people. We didn't know theology, couldn't quote scripture. Uh, all we could say was, this is what Jesus did for me, and he can do it for you, and they would come. So the question for you to consider, how is your ministry to the lost? I'm asking the housewife, the teenager, the single mother, the married couple in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. How is, what kind of shape is your ministry to the lost? Amen. Well, I'm not qualified. Well, I don't know enough. I don't want to offend anyone. I have too many problems in my own life to worry about 
the eternal destiny of someone else's soul. Some people are actually embarrassed or ashamed or claim to not have the time. Or they think, my little witness isn't really going to make a difference. You've heard the story of the fellow walking down the beach. I think it was in Mexico is where the story takes place. And it was a, a natural phenomena that takes place where millions of starfish are washed up on the beach and they die. And so this guy is walking along the beach and he picks up one star. I mean, there's millions of them. He picks up a starfish and tosses it back in the water, walks a little further, picks up a starfish and tosses it into the water. And there's another guy watching him do that. And he thinks, this is crazy. And he goes up and talks to him and says, you're not making any difference. What do you think you're doing? And he picked up another one, looked at him and said, I'm making a difference for this one. And he tossed him into the water and picked up another one and tossed him into the water. You are making a difference. So let's look then at the heart and see whether you have the heart of someone who's compelled to speak up. It's not always an easy prospect. It wasn't for Esther. You know, everyone here would agree and everyone listening online and everywhere I would preach, most everyone, would agree that we should speak up. That if I am called to preach, I should talk to my pastor so that I can get to my city or nation and begin to speak up for God and represent Christ in that city. We agree with that in principle. But do you know that 95% of all Christians have never won a soul to Christ? That research was done by George Barnett. Don't know how perfectly accurate it is, but... Could be way up there. Do you think God is happy with that? 80% of all Christians do not consistently witness for Christ. Would you be in that number? Less than 2% are involved in any regular ministry of outreach and evangelism. 64% of Christians believe that personal evangelism is optional. Do I need to repeat it? I will. 64% of Christians believe that evangelism is optional. 71% do not give toward the financing of the Great Commission. That's not talking about you. I hope those numbers are much lower or higher relative to the point that's being made. But in his article uh, called Christians Are Not Spreading the Gospel, uh, he said... That research shows that surprisingly few adults, including born-again Christians and evangelicals, feel a personal responsibility to share their faith with non-believers. Our story is about Esther's eventual willing to speak up after initial reluctance. These are her peeps, the Jewish people. Catastrophes about to fall on them And she's the only one who can have impact, at least at this point. So let's look at what she has to overcome. First of all, she has to overcome fear. I've had a few occasions where I've had to talk to the wives of someone called to preach. They're about to take a missionary assignment. And the wives are fearful. 
natural. Not saying that that's sin or wrong. We send a couple just into Juarez, just across the border. Probably they live maybe eight miles from my house. Uh, but she called in a panic one night. They're hearing gunshots in the neighborhood. This was in a time when uh, it was real intense over there. She's fearful. Esther had to overcome her fear. Esther chapter 4 verse 11 and all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called and that would include Esther his wife there is but one law that all would be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days that's what Esther's saying I can't do it <coughs> she's fearful for her life she has to overcome these cultural barriers. This just wasn't done. Couldn't just walk into the presence of the king. Even if you were his wife, you had to be called for. And it's not something that you could initiate. Before she spoke up, she had to face the very real fear of rejection. And in this case, it could have meant death. This is an issue that we all have to overcome in order to make a public stand for God in the face of what we deal with culturally. You can be rejected. You can be violently opposed. You know, everyone wants to be liked. And I wonder, I thought of this when I was pondering this sermon for tonight. You young people, or maybe not so young people, I know there are a lot of wives that are just totally hooked on social media. And what you're hooked on is the emotional dopamine rush that comes when some nonsense you put out on your social media page gets a like. That just makes you feel warm and fuzzy. All over the place. And I wonder if that affects that, that this, this obsession with that kind of element affects our willingness to witness, to walk up to a stranger and risk reject not liking you, a thumbs down. Have you ever gotten a thumbs down for one of your goofy pictures? We all want to be liked and we all want to be loved. And many people, I think many Christians are intimidated into silence. At least that's what George Barna's research says. 95% have not won a single soul to Christ. That has to mean they're not planting seeds. They're not witnessing and sharing their faith. Acts 18, 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul by night in a vision. Do not be afraid. Why did he have to tell Paul to not be afraid? Do not be afraid. Is he intimidated? Is he cowering a little bit? Is he getting, getting a little freaked out over all the rejection and the persecution. Paul, don't be afraid. You speak up and do not keep silent. Why would the Lord have to say that to him? Why would the Lord have to spell out for Ezekiel? You are a watchman. He should have known that. You know, that whole narrative about Ezekiel being a watchman is a rebuke because he wasn't fulfilling that responsibility totally. 
And God had to spell it out for him. You're a watchman. You got to get up on the wall and look out at the horizon and warn everybody about what's coming. Secondly, she had to die to self-interest. Verse 16, she said, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan. Fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, what a conclusion, this young girl. And they say that she could have been as young as 16 or 17 years old at this time. What a conclusion she had to draw. I'm going to speak up. It could cost me my life, but she had to die to self-interest, self-preservation. I have to take the risk to try to rescue someone, to try to rescue my people from annihilation. For her to speak, she had to be willing to die. For us to speak, it may not be physical death, but it's death to self-interest sometimes. You have to drop your pride and your ego. You have to risk rejection, being mocked and made fun of if you're in high school or if you're in a place of work uh, that's filled with woke-oriented people. You're going to take risks when you speak up for God. And I wonder how many are intimidated to silence uh, because of the atmosphere that you step into every day when you go to school or work. She was certainly intimidated initially. Being a witness for Jesus Christ, especially today, is ego bruising. The moment you open your mouth, part of you will have to die. You have to take risks. I don't recommend, you know, standing on top of a desk at work and pulling out your Bible and preaching. You've got to do your job, but you look for opportunities to witness. And we've had people lose their jobs and get themselves into trouble because they witnessed to one individual uh, happened to be a lesbian. And she went and told the boss and created all kinds of problems. So you have to count the cost Wait for good opportunities where you think you might be able to speak up or where it could land and bring conviction to someone. But there's all sort of risks involved in that. And some people just won't take the risk as Esther refused to do initially. Thirdly, she had to recognize her position. Mordecai, her cousin, said to her, her cousin who had raised her said, if you remain, verse 14 of uh, Esther 4, if you remain... If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther was made to realize that she was divinely placed in a position to help if she would just speak up. Do you realize that some of the people that are in your circle of influence may never hear a clear-cut testimony of Jesus if they don't hear it from you. You are it for them. I'm so grateful for the per people uh, that were assigned to witness to me. I'm thankful that they did it. Initially, uh, they were total strangers to me. Uh, we moved into a house downstairs. They lived upstairs. Uh, that put them in a position. Uh, they got a witness to us, especially uh, when they started smelling uh, weed smoke the first night we were there. They got a burden, and we got to get these people saved down there. We don't want to go to church smelling like pot. They're going to be suspicious. The truth is that all of you 
are placed in key places. Where you're going to interact with people who may never hear about Jesus if they don't hear from you. And that's what Esther realized. She is like the watchman that Ezekiel was called to be. We are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. We are the light of the world. We have to flavor and preserve our generation. Speaking of Ezekiel, it says in Ezekiel 3.16, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman. Why does God have to say that? Because he needed to hear it. He wasn't fulfilling completely his divine mission. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. He would only have to say that if he wasn't fulfilling that to the degree that God wanted him to. So let's talk about God's care for the souls of men and women. God loves his people. God loves people that are in rebellion to him that are blind and deaf to truth and revelation. God loves every precious soul that is underneath your oversight in the city where you live, in the nation where you come from, in this city of Tempe where all of you live. God loves every single individual that you and I have opportunity to influence by speaking up. God wants to save a world that is in peril. God wanted to save the Jews from annihilation in our text, and he needed someone to speak up. The destiny of people who are going to provide a savior, the lineage of the Jewish people would bring about the Messiah. That's what's at stake here. Esther was told by Mordecai in essence that your life only makes sense in light of who you can save. Perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I thought about Joseph in the book of Genesis when I read that scripture. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers who hated him, raised up for many years in Egypt, did a stretch of about 10 years in prison, comes out of prison, is made prime minister, gained favor with Pharaoh. And then when his brothers have to come to Egypt for food during a famine, Joseph said to them, because they had to go to him, he was the one in charge of the distribution of food. And unbeknownst to them, they went to him, didn't recognize him, but when he revealed himself to them, he said, don't be afraid, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They were afraid that Joseph was going to kill them and get even and get revenge. But he recognized the position that God had put him in to save people. So we have to make a determination. And that determination is I must speak up. If you're called to preach, I want to reiterate it. I apologize for being a little bit repetitive. But one of the themes that I felt in my ministry over the past uh, period of time is a sense of urgency. Jesus is coming. We have to do as much as we can as soon as we can. We don't have time to fight with each other. 
We don't have time to, to, to walk away from a calling in pursuit of money. If you're called to preach, get about the business of getting yourself located where you can speak up on behalf of a nation or a city. And if you're not called to preach, you're a member of a church, you're a disciple, you're a couple, you're a single mother, you're a teenager, then start speaking up in your world and you watch what God will do and who he will save. We are the watchmen for our generation. My congregation in El Paso, hundreds of people, who knows how many people they represent who can be saved. If each one of the members of my congregation knows 10 people, that's 5,000 and probably a lot more than that, places of work. And then the outreaches where we go and we witness to strangers. Our congregation represents uh, the possibility of thousands upon thousands of people that can be saved if we'll speak up. Yeah. Tilly Smith, Tilly Smith was on vacation with her family in Thailand in 2004. She was only 10 years old. She and her family were on the beach and she noticed something unusual. She recognized the signs of receding water from the shoreline and the frothing bubbles on the surface of the sea. Two weeks later in her geography class, she learned what these signs meant. Several years after the incident, she said these words in an interview, the sea was high on the sand and I noticed waves were coming in, but they weren't going out. The sea was fizzing. And there was froth on top of the waves. And I kept thinking, I've seen this. I've seen this somewhere. I felt something terrible was going to happen. I started to say that to my parents. But they said, don't be silly, Tilly. <laughs> the weather's just bad. And they insisted on carrying on with their walk further away from the hotel. Then I noticed a log spinning around and around in the sea. And suddenly it hit me, a tsunami's coming. All the things I was seeing had been in the video that we saw in my geography class recently. They were signs a tsunami was about to hit. And soon, before the tsunami hit, few people in the Western world had ever heard the word, including Tilly's parents. She said, I started shouting, tsunami, there's going to be a tsunami. Of course, my parents didn't know what I was talking about. But by now I was in a complete panic. I was shouting and crying. We had to get off the beach. We have to run. We have to go now. My sister Holly got freaked out and started crying hysterically. So my dad decided to walk back to the hotel with her and try to calm her down. But my mom refused to leave and insisted on continuing with her walk. We were getting further and further away from the hotel. I was screaming, please, mom, please come back with me. I was saying, if you don't come back with me, we won't survive. I remember seeing people on the sea, on the beach, and I thought we're all going to die. Pointing out a yellow lifeguard hut that is a good half mile away from the hotel, she adds, we'd reached here and I pleaded with my mom to stop, please stop. I didn't want to leave her, but I started to run back by myself to the hotel. When I got to the hotel, my dad was with a Japanese security guard. Remember, they're in Thailand, a Japanese security guard. And the security guard was saying, I know this sounds completely mad. Or the father said, I know to the, to the security guard, he said, I know this sounds completely mad. But my daughter is saying something's going to happen, something called a tsunami. In Japan, they know all about tsunamis. And the guard said, I think she's right. 
He then told us there had been a huge earthquake in the Indian Ocean uh, moments ago. Uh, yes, yes, tsunami, tidal wave, it will come. Uh, he started shouting to people on the beach to get off. They all went running out. Uh, there was a family kayaking in the sea, people in the pool. Uh, everyone started to run, and there was sheer panic. We started screaming uh, at Mom, who was running back, but she was far in the distance. Uh, I was praying she was going to make it, uh, as she was one of the last to get off the beach. I saw the sea by then had gone completely out over a mile, and I knew that meant the tsunami was going to be right on top of us in moments. I shouted, run, run at everyone. I remember families and kids screaming. There was a wall of water coming towards us. I lost sight of my dad and ran towards the hotel lobby, which was on the upper floor. Water was flooding into the hotel now. There was crashing and banging and the roaring of the sea. There were hundreds of people in the lobby screaming. People just didn't know what to do. They didn't know what was happening. I knew there was going to be aftershocks from what I had learned in my class the days before. And there were going to be more waves and more water. So I told people, we had to get up to high ground. I found dad and thank God mom was now with him. We all hugged each other lightly, uh, tightly rather, and crying. It was only later when the family saw TV reports of the devastation that they realized just how lucky they had been. Tilly says no one on our beach died. No one. We didn't realize that hundreds of thousands had died. Over five different nations we saw the news. My dad was in shock. He kept saying, Tilly, Tilly, what if we hadn't listened to you? She knew what no one else did. She was the only one equipped to warn. And so are you. I want you to bow your heads with me. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless.